Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. The Red River Valley of the North is uh, not well known by most Midwesterners. Most people haven't been this far north uh, in their lives. But I'm talking to a man today who lives in this area, uh, has been up here all his life, and is a retired farm broadcaster. Mike Hergert and I go back a long way. And by the way, the reason we're having this interview is we're both going fishing on Lake of the Woods tomorrow. So I thought we might as well make something profitable out of this. So Mike, first of all, how are you? I'm great, Ken. Good to see you up here. Thank you. It's good to be here. And uh, it's a 10-hour drive from Iowa up here, so it shows you how far that it is. But when you look at this part of the world, you see it as, or a southerner sees it as cold, uh, sees it as uh, long, long days this uh, middle of summer, but really short days in the wintertime. And uh, the question is, do you have enough of a growing season to be able to grow crops? Well, obviously you do. This is kind of a breadbasket here. Tell us your overview of the Red River Valley and what that entails. You know, when I moved up here in 1986, I had already heard about the Red River Valley, and I was intrigued. I, d I didn't know much about it, but I, I knew that it had some uh, history, especially from an agricultural standpoint. The valley is, it's, it's not a typical river. It's a very small river. It flows north. It starts down at uh, south of Fargo, North Dakota, at the North Dakota-Minnesota border, moves all the way to Lake Winnipeg, which ultimately ends up in the Hudson Bay. It's, it's the, the result of Lake Agassiz thousands of years ago, which resulted from glaciers melting. So this is a very fertile lake bed, basically. It is some of the richest farmland in the world. It's uh, heavy soil, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's gumbo. It's it's very black. It's uh, it's very deep. Now, in farming it, though, when can you get on it in the spring to be able to get this ready to go? Well, it varies, uh, and it's changed. When I first came here, it was typical for sugar beets to get planted. That's usually the first crop that gets planted mid-April. Uh, back about 93, 1993, our, I believe our climate changed. We got very wet and very long summers. We used to typically think we'd freeze or get our first frost in early September. It's not unusual now to go to late October. Uh, and like I said, much more moisture in the summer. So we used to be wheat, barley, maybe a little sunflower, Sugar beets, potatoes, now it's, there's an awful lot of corn and soybeans. Well, soybeans have increased here more than really any place else in the country. You have big counties in North Dakota, and I think the number one acreage county of soybeans in America is in North Dakota. Yes, Cass County, which is Fargo, 
south southeast corner. But uh, and and part of that was driven by farm policy. I don't remember which farm bill or what the zero ninety two or but farmers figured out there was a, a big government incentive to plant soybeans, and at about the same time, 1993, when we started getting wet, we got tremendous disease problems in wheat and barley, and, and soybeans were a great alternative. Now, you have uh, Devil's Lake in this part of the world, which in itself is a strange place, in that, as I understand it, back in the 30s, it was a mud hole. Today, it's huge. And it has no exit, so the water goes in there and just stays. Well, to, to some extent, but it does uh, it does flow out into the Cheyenne River. In fact, uh, back in the real height of the flood of the lake, which started in 1993, the lake quadrupled in size. And then they built a couple of outlets to manually get rid of some water. But that's been a real political hot potato. As I recall, you can't pump water across an international border that's lower quality than the water that's in the river before that. Is that right? Well, that's part of the issue because the Devil's Lake water can go into the Cheyenne River, which goes south down to Jamestown, Valley City, and then ends up in the Red River, which goes north into <laughs> Canada. So that's the political problem. Well, if you haven't been in this part of the world, and I'm talking North Dakota as much as any area, you just uh, really can't believe how flat it is. Uh, and a part of that caused the flood of 1997 in Grand Forks, which is the town you live in. How did that go? 90% uh, of the city was evacuated. We lost in Grand Forks, East Grand Forks, Minnesota, about a thousand homes. Literally some of them floated down the river. It was, it was something that I think most people would not go through again. But we, uh, we had a couple of things going our way. We had a, a woman mayor who was a fire plug and captured the heart of the country and Bill Clinton and at that time the government had a surplus yep. I know that's hard to imagine but uh, FEMA was very good to the community and Congress was and uh, initially everybody I think felt like we were in the same boat we're gonna fight we're gonna build a city back together but then when you started finding out that somebody got this much from FEMA and you got this much and people, you know how people are. Uh, but from that today, I understand you're in kind of a growth mode in Grand Forks. Absolutely. Our downtown especially is so much different and so much better off than we were prior to the flood. And, and, and part of that initially was FEMA's involvement, but since then it's been private investment. Uh, recently, I think just in four or five projects, we're, we're investing over a billion dollars, private investment, wow. primarily apartments, retail space. We talk more about farmers than others, but everybody fits together. But in the farm economy of the Red River Valley and the surrounding area that you know of from your radio experience as a farm broadcaster, um, how do you think the farmers are doing? I think very well. 
land values continue to go up. I, I think uh, commodity prices have been very good. Sugar beets have been consistently very profitable, and that seems to drive the whole thing. It's been, I think, quite difficult for obviously young farmers to start without a dad or an uncle or something like that. So I've talked to farmers that, you know, I, I ask them, are you going to retire? Well, I really can't because Junior is going to farm and I always have to keep my name on the, on the bank sheet. So it's, it's an expensive deal, but I think they're doing well. Uh, commodity prices are, like I said, uh, I think very, very strong. And uh, if, if, if you can't do it here, I don't know where you could because this is very, very forgiving land. Even though we have our issues with weather and short seasons sometimes, uh, it's, it's very profitable land. How about animal agriculture. I mean, with this cold climate, do you have a lot of animal agriculture here? In western North Dakota, and west starts, you know, maybe 30 miles from the valley. Uh, there's more cows in North Dakota than there are people, but it's primarily in western North Dakota, central to western. The Red River Valley, I'm told, uh, the ground is too profitable to have pastures and so forth. So it, it's definitely a, an east-west dynamic in North Dakota. What about farmers adopting technology and themselves getting bigger here? Uh, is that trend the same as it is everywhere else? I like to think that these guys here set the trend. Uh, and maybe it's because I had to say that when I was working, but I really believe it because, uh, I mean... Uh, they, they were never afraid and still aren't to adopt the latest technology. And you talk about farmers. I mean, I, it's not unusual to hear of somebody that knows somebody that's farming 30,000 acres here. 30,000 acres. Yes. I, I have personally heard of farmers that forget to harvest maybe a quarter section, that they're very large. Some. Uh, I don't know what the average is, but it's, uh, it's, big, it's, it's a big investment. Well, I think that uh, if you have good land and you have good prices, you will continue to see a downtrend of the number of farmers because farmers show that they can produce a large volume uh, profitably on whatever amount of land they can. So they can uh, invest. They can carry that money into more land and more purchases. Um, but I do find that uh, the technology has become extremely complicated. Uh, and I wonder if you get any farmers who push back of just, you know, how far can we go with the involvement we have to have from other people of things we can't do ourselves? That's a very good question. I, I wonder, especially we all know it's becoming harder and harder to find the, the help you need. And I think that's one of the reasons we're, we're driving toward, you know, tractors that don't have a seat on them. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know the future. I don't know how that's ever going to work. But uh, he, he, it, it is, the, the, especially the sugar beet and potato operations, 
demand a lot of labor and equipment, trucks. And some of these trucks, this equipment, you, you, I wonder how they find the people they're comfortable with turning the keys over to this equipment. But they seem to get it, they seem to find the people. I don't, that's a challenge though, moving forward, has to be. Well, I don't think it's any different than the challenge other industry faces. And everywhere I go, I see signs that say uh, hiring, uh, but no manufacturer that I know of is getting the number and the quality of people they want. Uh, and I think farmers are in the same situation, which tends to make them move more toward autonomous equipment and a future of that. And here you and I are sitting here in our mid-70s, um, with a, a rich history, but no better ability to look forward than anybody else. But it, to me, it seems like that the future is, uh, is highly in question of which way they're going to go. I mean, how much bigger can you get? How much more automated can you get? Um, and will you be able to have the guarantee of profitability, which we've never really had except from the government support programs, to be able to stay in a dynamically changing industry? One, one thing that I should have mentioned in your previous question, we have seen a lot of foreign workers, H-2As, and a lot of them, I keep hearing about South Africans. We've had an influx of South African employees here, and by and large what I hear is they're very good employees, very good farm workers. They probably came from the farm in South Africa. Uh, they've quickly adapted here and, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know the future, but uh, it's it's going to be a challenge. I, I do know also some retired farmers, anybody that's had a, a background in agriculture, they are willing to work part-time, harvest, but they're, they really struggle with even knowing how to run some of this equipment. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, who's the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, I've had your hearing aids for the last 17 years, and certainly they made a positive difference in my life. I'd like to ask you something about the modern day, though, and the research that you have found. Is there a link between an uncorrected hearing loss and dementia? Uh, yes, there is. The research came out about 10 years ago from Johns Hopkins University, uh, Dr. Franklin. He found that you were anywhere from two to five times more likely to develop dementia with an untreated hearing loss. And, you know, everyone says, well, how can that be? And when you think about how hearing works, sound comes into the ear, it hits the eardrum, eardrum vibrates, sends the signal over three little bones. The bones then send the signal to the cochlea that has 15,000 tiny little hairs inside of there. Those little hairs, as they get damaged, will, will either break off, get brittle, not move as well. The correct signal doesn't get to the brain and think about it, you know, like, um, you know, radio, TV, any kind of signal, that signal gets jumbled. You can't piece together what's being said. So you struggle to watch the show. That is your brain with an untreated hearing loss. What happens is your brain pulls from two areas to compensate for that untreated hearing loss. It pulls from cognitive and it pulls from balance and gait. So cognitive being how we understand, how we converse, that gets actually damaged because it's getting pulled from to focus on an untreated hearing loss. That's where the link to dementia 
actually comes in. So it's because we're pulling re valuable resources to focus on an untreated hearing loss, it speeds up that, that aging of the brain. So you're anywhere from, even with a mild hearing loss, you're twice as likely to develop dementia. Taylor, thank you very much. You can schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing, 877-955-4020, or online at iowahearing.com. I'm talking with Mike Hergert, who is a retired farm broadcaster. He and uh, some other people that were very dynamic uh, started and led the Red River Farm Network for several years. And during my AgriTalk years was when you were doing this, and I watched your network uh, with uh, great interest and uh, marvel at what you guys accomplished. You are up against Canada here on the North End, and I pulled a little tape a while back that I found from one of my first AgriTalk shows. I said, let's go to Mike Hergert. And what are your issues up there? And you brought up NAFTA, which wasn't even formed as of yet. How, in your opinion, up against Canada, uh, in more ways than one, is our relationship with a country that has a very different government and a very different farm policy than we have? I think uh, the Canadians, many years ago, somebody told me that they feel like they're the mouse sleeping next to the elephant. But I, I think generally... Uh, farmer to farmer, they get along. Uh, definitely different policy ideas, at least depending on the administration in Washington, D.C. But uh, from time to time, I know back in, what, the early 90s, I think maybe when you and I talked, there was an awful lot of Canadian wheat coming into this country. I don't hear that much concern about that anymore. I don't know if it's been resolved or if it follows the market, and sometimes it you know, comes in more frequently than, but I, I think generally speaking, farmer to farmer, they get along very, very well. I always say that in the western provinces, you can't tell the difference when you cross the border. The farmers are literally the same, the crops are the same, but Canada does have programs that uh, give subsidies that seem to make it a little unfair, especially in livestock. Uh, I was visiting with a lady who had 3,000 chickens, and uh, she said that, you know, you can only have a number, a certain number of chickens in Canada without a permit, and then you have to buy the permit for the rest of the chickens, but when you buy that permit, then you can sell your eggs for $7 a dozen, where in the U.S. at that time, they were selling them for $2 a dozen. So Canada does have an unequal system to ours in some ways, uh, I really don't know how we approach it other than just uh, endure the fact they can run their ship, we run ours. It's probably right, and I think it goes both ways. I, I know I gave a speech once in uh, Canada and Manitoba, and they were amazed at how many government programs we had. Right. So it, it's, uh, you know, the fingers are pointing both ways. It'll probably never change. Ours is an entitlement. Yours is a subsidy. That's the way we always have to look at this. I'm able to, you know, lay down my daily work with a microphone with farmers uh, and keeping track of their issues and feel somewhat satisfied that I think we kept them informed, but they have kept themselves going. And I don't see that there's any stopping these farmers that are in business today from continuing on for other generations in the future. 
I, I think you're exactly right. One thing I would say when you talked about keeping informed, one thing I noticed when I was working, the farmers, in, and this is generally speaking, I don't want to point any fingers at our farmers, but the farmers in Manitoba, I think, knew more about U.S. farm policy than our farmers did. Well, I think worldwide you'll find that people know more about the U.S. than we know about them. And that's our fault, actually, because we don't care. We, we think we're the center of the earth. And, you know, you know how many Iowa farmers it takes to change a light bulb? One. He stands there and the world revolves around him. That's what we think, and, and maybe we're right, because in this case, we know Canada does, because, like I said, they feel like they're the mouse with the elephant. So I think in some respects, the U.S. does kind of set the agricultural tone. Well, if you look at the Chicago Board of Trade, that is where the mercantile exchange, that is where that prices are determined worldwide for crops. And it, it, makes, uh, it makes sense. And it is strange, you know, you and I have traveled worldwide, and you ask these people, you know, how do you get your grain quote? Well, we get it out of Chicago. Well, we're in southern Brazil right now. Yeah, it it's, makes the world small, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. Mike, it's great to talk to you and to uh, uh, get back to telling stories with each other, and some of them were even halfway true, I think. Mike, we saw a lot of really interesting people. Let me ask you for a if you wouldn't mind, uh, a few of the people that come to mind that were in public policy that really you think uh, made a big difference during your career? Oh, gosh, uh, that's, that's a tough question. But your, your friend down in Kansas State University, Barry Flinchbaugh, yeah. when it comes to farm policy, I mean, everybody looked his direction. And, and of course, Pat Roberts, yeah. very colorful. Uh, you know, who else could get by with saying, what do you think about the farm bill? I think we ought to pay it. You know, nobody from North Dakota could get by with that. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, I, I just, I, I had the opportunity to interview so many personalities, and they carried a lot of weight. Colin Peterson from Minnesota was very humble, uh, very down-to-earth, he, he probably surprised a lot of people when they found out he wasn't a farmer. He was a CPA, but he he thought like a farmer. He spoke the farmer's language. Most farmers, 99% uh, of them always voted for him. I don't know that a lot of them knew what party he was. Uh, that we don't see nowadays. But he lost because he basically was a... Democrat in a district that was turning red. Yes, uh, yes, that was uh, part of the part of the uh, maybe the, the Trump move. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, and and I think every, I mean, everything in life is a pendulum, and everybody you you think they're never going to get defeated. Everybody has a. One other man to bring up, and I don't know how people rank him at this point, but Tom Vilsack has literally been the Secretary of Agriculture for most of the 21st century. I don't know why he continues to serve, but he serves well, and the USDA seems to be humming along without major issues that I know of, and I think he's quite a good administrator. 
That's, I think I remember hearing that when he first took the job. He was a very good administrator and, and he keeps his nose clean and uh, yeah, he's uh, in, in what I would consider a somewhat political administration, I don't see him that way. Nor did I when he was there the first time. Well, we'll uh, hope that we have people like the Bob Doles and the uh, Dan Glickmans and the Pat Roberts. And uh, we need another professor. We lost Barry Flinchbaugh a couple of years ago, who was uh, really an amazing guy. And uh, Charlie Stenholm from Texas uh, is no longer with us. And Colin Peterson is probably doing well financially right now, but we don't have his voice in agriculture like we had. But yet, on we go. We, we do, and I keep hearing, it seems like every two to four years, we keep hearing, well, we're going to write a farm bill, and so large a percentage of the people have never voted on a farm bill. But so far, farmers seem to uh, still carry some clout. I think disproportionately, farmers do carry clout. I've had farmers who tell me, you know, they that no one does anything that they need, but yet at the same time, if you look back at these programs, and they go all the way to the 1930s, there has been a desire in this country to have a policy that never allows the price of food to be a major issue in an election. And the best way to do that is keep the farmers producing at a high level, and farmers love to produce. Almost to their detriment. We, dairy is a good example. We, th th there's never been a program that farmers could not figure out and overproduce. And then we overcompensate, in my opinion, and uh, they're very good at producing. They know how to farm, and they know how to farm the government. Mike Herkert, thank you very much for talking with me. Thanks very much, Ken. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.